So if you have a Bible, turn me to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to give you one. We have uh, some right out the doors to your left at, at our information desk. You can pick one up on your way out. Uh, somewhere near the middle of December, last December, I guess just a, a few months ago, um, I started to get a lot of people asking me, I don't know what, what prompted this, I guess we were nearing Chris, Chris, uh, Christmas, they were saying, hey, what is your favorite Christmas movie? And, uh, you know, inquiring minds wanted to know, and I, I couldn't really even, the first time I was asked, I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't think of what my, my favorite Christmas movie may have been. I think I ended up saying uh, Christmas Vacation, um, but as I thought about it, I actually haven't seen that movie in 30 years, so I have no idea uh, really what's in that movie. Um, the rest of my family loves the movie Elf, which many of you uh, may enjoy as well. And I like that one uh, too, but seeing it once was enough for me. So when they watch it, I, I, I do something else. Um, but I do have a favorite movie to watch on Christmas Day. And I guess the funny thing is it really has nothing to do with Christmas at all. Um, but I started this tradition in 2013. On Christmas Day, I watched the movie 20 Feet from Stardom. It's a, it's a documentary. It's a fascinating movie, um, especially what it reveals about human longing. Um, it won the Academy Award for Best Documentary in 2013. And what it is, it's a story about um, backup singers from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and even more recently than that. And it tells their unique stories, what it's like to be 20 feet in the back of the stage, 20 feet from the, the, the stars, um, and what it's like to sort of process that, those emotions and that life. You're always sort of, you're, you're on the stage, but you're never the one in focus. You're there performing. You're gifted. You're incredibly gifted, but you're not the one that people have come to see. Each backup singer has a unique story to tell, again, about being near the spotlight, uh, but never in the spotlight, despite themselves having incredible talent. Well, last week we looked at the ministry uh, of John the Baptist, who despite being incredibly well-known, remarkably gifted, a prophet unlike any that had come along in hundreds of years, was actually, he spent his entire life actually pointing to another. In fact, last week we saw that when asked who he was, John repeatedly answered with a negative. He answered who he was not. He said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm simply a witness to the one who would come after me. And we, we made the point last week that sometimes in order for us to really know who we are, we have to start with who we're not. We're not people who are in control of our own lives. We have surrendered, we've relinquished control of our lives to our Savior, our King, to the Lord himself who is the sovereign one. We're not people who were created to live alone. We were we were created to be in relationship, and we, we've sort of thrown our lot in with other fickle, unreliable, sinful people, the church. Um, we're not people who make decisions in a vacuum. We're not people who can save ourselves. Sometimes, again, in order for us to know who we are, we have to begin with who we're not. We're not people who can save ourselves. We need a Savior. This morning, we continue to look at John's that, that section with John and we're going to see a transition from John's I am not statements to his positive declarations about Jesus and what he came to do. So John chapter 1, and we're going to cover verses 29 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, note that phrase, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. Second time he said this. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist has been talking about Jesus. And as you know, he's a person who would attract these large crowds. Um, And as we saw last week, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, sent a delegate, a group of delegates to go find out what, who this guy was. So he's attracting this large crowd. He's talking about Jesus, telling people that Jesus is so great. He's so uh, majestic. He's so powerful. He's so awesome that John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Well, even as Jesus or John is talking about Jesus, the text tells us that John saw Jesus coming toward him. Now, this is a very meaningful phrase. It's no accident that John uses, John the evangelist uses this phrase right after the prologue of his gospel, right after the mystery of the incarnation. This is one of the most powerful yet overlooked sentiments in John's gospel, and that is Jesus coming toward people. We see this actually throughout Jesus' life. Remember when uh, Jesus had just risen from the dead and uh, and he told his disciples, I want you to go meet me at this certain place. And they meet him there. When they see him sort of coming up over the, the top of the hill and they realize who it is, they don't know what to do. I mean, some of them are afraid, some feared, some doubted, some worshiped, we're told. And what does Jesus do? The text tells us Jesus drew near to them. Jesus came toward them and said, right, all authority and so on. Um, there's another great, uh, a little bit before that, on, on the day of the resurrection, there are a couple of guys who are walking to Emmaus, on this road to Emmaus, and, and they're, they're, they're talking among themselves, like, okay, can, do you know all, the, can you even believe all the stuff that's going on? This Messiah had created a bit of a stir in Jerusalem, so these two men are walking along and they're talking about Jesus, trying to process all that they'd heard about this Messiah, and the text tells us that Jesus drew near to them and explained how all the scriptures are about him. My favorite example of this is when Peter asked Jesus if he can walk on water, right? which Jesus is actually doing at the time. The disciples had been on the water all night in a boat, and at the fourth watch, the text tells us, around 3 a.m., uh, they're, they're in a really bad way. They haven't made it very far. They've been rowing for some seven or eight hours. They haven't progressed. And then all of a sudden, they see Jesus walking on the water toward them. And Peter, you know, being the most bold and, and sort of outspoken, he says, hey, Jesus, can I come to you? Can I walk on water? And so Peter gets out of the boat and he, he starts walking on water. and He does okay for a little bit. And then he looks around and looks down. And so he starts to sink and he cries out uh, in terror. And the text tells us that immediately Jesus came toward him. Jesus drew near to him, took him by the hand and rescued him. Jesus coming toward us. This is the story of the incarnation. In fact, in Christ, God came toward us and did not require that we make it 
all the way to him. Unlike every other religion, which emphasizes the ways that, that humankind, humans can actually make it to God, to the so-called gods, whether it's the five pillars of Islam or the 12 steps of Mormonism or the eightfold path of Buddhism, every other religion describes how we can sort of earn our way, ingratiate ourselves to the gods by doing enough, by serving enough, sacrificing enough, in some places, some instances even harming ourselves so we can make it to these gods or to harmony or whatever the end goal is. But unlike every other religion, with the Christian faith, the real God actually comes all the way to us. This is a movement we see throughout the scriptures and throughout John's gospel. Jesus coming toward an undeserved people, drawing near to us. Those who have no hope of ever actually drawing near to him. Those who are lost and even have no interest in God at all. He comes toward them in mercy and grace. When we have no interest in God, no relationship with God, and we can even say, when we do not, in fact, know him at all, Christ draws near to us. And I think this really helps us make sense of John's repeated statements in verses 31 and 33. He says twice, I myself did not know him, which is really an odd thing to say. When I read that, I, I struggle with that. I thought, how, how could he say that? Because remember, when Jesus' mother Mary encounters John's mother, and, and actually John and Jesus are both sort of in utero, they're both in the womb, the text tells us that, that John the Baptist, that even while he was in the womb, he leaped for joy. He leaped at the presence of Jesus. So they go way, way back, we could say, all the way back to before they were born. So how could he say that he doesn't know him? Well, what he's doing is he's illustrating his own failures, John is. He's saying, I knew he was coming, and I still didn't recognize him. I was announcing his arrival, and yet still I didn't know when he'd arrived. The fact that John reports his shortcomings uh, twice tells us that his failure is not a side note in this sermon. He's not going down a rabbit trail here. This is a very central part of his message. Even John the Baptist, the one that Jesus calls the greatest person ever born of a woman, so the greatest person ever born, John the Baptist, he blew it when it came to recognizing Jesus. But he notes this, Jesus came toward him. New Testament scholar Frederick Dale Bruner writes, this priority, Christ coming toward us first, constantly reinforced in this gospel, will keep the church in mind of the perduring source, it just means enduring source, of all her responses of faith and obedience and of all her most important convictions and statements. In other words, this, the way that John describes Jesus coming toward people is a way to drive home to us what he will say very explicitly, and that is that Jesus loved us first. We love because he first loved us. When we were unlovable and unloving, Jesus loved us. When we were indifferent and actually running from him, Jesus pursued us, which has always been his pattern, showing grace and mercy when we least expect it. Now, here's our first point this morning from this text. In Christ... God is constantly moving toward us, preempting and enabling our response to him. 
He's constantly moving toward us. We might say it this way. In Christ, God is constantly moving toward us, transforming our chaos into beauty. Now, he does this in our relationships, doesn't it? At that time when you think there's no hope for this relationship, whether it's a parent-child or marriage or it's a sibling or it's a, a boss, whatever it is, it's a, a neighbor, you think there's no hope for this relationship, God is constantly moving forward, pouring out his grace and his mercy and bringing about redemption. Maybe it's not just our relationships. Maybe it's in our spiritual lives when you feel like Maybe you look at your life and in the beginning of the year has been a chance for you to kind of take inventory and you realize, I really haven't grown that much. I feel like I'm in a real rut. I haven't grown the last week or six months or year or whatever it is. And yet, then we see as we really expand out and look with a larger lens how God continues to mold and shape and chip away and conform us to the image of his son. And most arrestingly, God moves toward us in our salvation. This is the testimony of every believer, not that we found God or made room for him, but that in Christ, God came near to us and overwhelmed us with his loving kindness. And what a beautiful revelation of God. You know, far from being this God, uh, you know, way back before Christ was born, so you go back a couple thousand years before that and in, in Greek uh, philosophy, they had this idea, this notion of God as the unmoved mover. He was a God, he was really more of a force than a person. And he wasn't really moved by, by the, the plight of humanity. Well, far from being that sort of being, far from being a God who's, who's unmoved by our struggle or even waiting to punish us, a God who says one more offense and that's it, our God is known for his compassion approaching us when we don't even know him and actually overwhelming us when we don't even want to know him. I mentioned, uh, I hadn't really planned on mentioning this. I don't know why I did, but I was talking a little bit about C.S. Lewis on Wednesday night at our, our first study in our marriage series. And I, and I shared a quote by him. Well, C.S. Lewis was a great example of God moving towards someone when that person didn't even want to know God. In fact, as C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy, he talks about uh, the years he spent as an atheist and completely against God. And he says this, I had always wanted, C.S. Lewis says, above all things, not to be interfered with. I had wanted, a mad wish, to call my soul my own. But God interfered, Lewis says. You must picture me alone in that room in his study, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. This is what C.S. Lewis, I, I didn't want to meet this God. I didn't want to fall down on my knees and confess the lordship or even the existence of this God. But I was so overwhelmed by his presence, so overcome by his majesty and his mercy, he says, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. I gave in and I admitted that God was God and I fell down on my knees and prayed he said, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. The steady, unrelenting approach of God. It's so much less about us finding God and so much more about him finding us. And that's actually, it's really comforting to me because, you know, when we feel most helpless, we feel most weak and maybe even most alone, 
perhaps even most indifferent, we realize that this God who came to us first is still with us and is still moving toward us and, in fact, will not let us go. He will always continue to move for us, toward us. John saw Jesus coming toward him, and as Jesus is approaching, what does John say? He says, Behold, look, everyone, take note, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This statement has been called the Mount Everest of John's witness to Jesus. More clear, more revealing than perhaps any other statement about the purpose for Jesus coming. I have a friend who is the, he's kind of the consummate salesman. Maybe, what, maybe it's a better way to say it. He's kind of the, he's the stereotypical bad salesman. So every time we get together, he has something he wants to, quote, run by me. He's got the, I got, I got to run, run this by you. You're, you're going to love this. Well, we had lunch. Uh, the last time we had lunch, we sat, to get, sat down together and we had, we had been sitting there for like 30 seconds. He said, and he said to me, John, I knew why would he use my name? We've been talking for 10 minutes in line. He said, John, if I were to give you a magic wand and allow you to paint a picture of where you'd like to see yourself in 10 years, what picture would you paint? I said, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> Just talk to me in your normal voice. Like, why are you doing this to me? We're friends. You don't have to sell me on anything. Just knock it off. He does that stuff all the time. Um, but every once in a while, he says something that's actually will kind of grab my attention. And not too long ago, he asked me, he said, have you ever written a mission statement for your family? Have you ever written a purpose statement? I thought, that's actually, that's actually a good thought. Like, you know, the Sloans exist for, and so writing that purpose statement. Well, in, in verse 31, John the Baptist tells his purpose statement, for this purpose he came, baptizing with water that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. But he also gives the purpose statement for the coming of Jesus. He says he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the reason that Jesus came. This, we might say, is Jesus' purpose statement. Now, what does he mean by the Lamb of God? Well, was this a reference to the lambs that were offered in sacrifice at the temple? Was he talking about the Passover lamb at the feast? Or was this a reference to the lamb who was led to the slaughter in Isaiah 53 in that great messianic passage? Or was John alluding to the ram that God provided as a substitute? Remember when Abraham created this altar to sacrifice his own son on, but God provided an alternative. Was, he, was John referring to that? Or could John have been referencing the lamb in Revelation 5 who was standing the text tells us, as though he had been slain and before whom all the living creatures bowed down. Or was John talking about the lamb called Christ who's without spot or blemish in 1 Peter 3? And I think the answer is yes, isn't it? He had all of these things in mind. There's so much to this reference, the lamb of God, that of course entire books have been written about it and we can't exhaust the implications in, in, in one morning. Um, but the implication would have been clear to John's audience, and they knew that a common thread ran through this. When we talk about the Lamb of God, and that common thread as it relates to the Lamb was this. The Lamb was a pure and innocent substitute in the place of someone else who had sinned, in the place of one who had sinned. And here John says about Jesus, He is the pure and innocent sacrifice for the world's sin. 
And notice he doesn't say sins, plural. He says sin, singular. In other words, it's not just bad deeds that Jesus came to deal with. It's not simply bad behavior that Jesus came to eradicate. But the source of that bad behavior, the cause of the bad behavior, sin as God's curse, God's condemnation on the world. Here's our second point. What Jesus the Lamb takes away is our condemnation, our shame, and our guilt by being condemned in our place. The Lamb of God has taken away our guilt for those who have believed. And because he's taken away our guilt, he's actually made it possible for us then to approach God. And because he was condemned for us, he's now made it possible for God to look at us and accept us. There was an article, I think it was, maybe it was August or September of 2017 in Christianity Today. And in this article, it talked about how now shame has surpassed guilt as the most common sort of emotion suffered by Americans. So now it's kind of neck and neck. It's kind of like when you watch a, a game and a, a sport, a football or basketball game, they say that you know, there's a, a variety of lead changes, right? So you have sometimes it's guilt and, and sometimes it's shame. And, um, but the article said that, that shame has, has supplanted guilt as the, the emotion that plagues most Americans. And they are different, by the way. Guilt tends to be the lingering weight that we feel when we've wronged someone, especially God, our creator. So we feel this, this burden, this, this lingering weight, this emotional duress, right? Well, shame is, is, is an emotion that's more self-directed. It reflects how we feel about ourselves. So shame is the belief that for some reason, something I've done, something done to me, perhaps a personal trauma, some horrible experience, or maybe the labeling by someone else, because of that, I am undeserving of love and, and, and too bad to be accepted. Well, Jesus Christ made an end to our guilt and our shame. Yes, we are guilty before God. It's not that we say we're not guilty. We are guilty. We're the ones who have committed the offenses, but by faith we're declared not guilty because of Jesus' obedience. So we don't have to struggle with the weight of our own sin. We think God doesn't know what we've done. Of course he does. Right? As this old hymn says, I think in the 1700s, he said, uh, yeah, I know my sins and thousands more. Jehovah knows none. It's been dealt with. So we don't have to live with guilt. You don't have to walk around worrying all the time. How does God feel about me? Am I ever going to be able to make it up to him? No, you can put off. You don't have to worry about guilt. It's been dealt with. And the same for shame. Shame is this feeling like, I don't know if I'm worth being loved. Well, because Christ has died for us, because he's been condemned for us, you don't have to worry about whether God accepts you now. He loves you. I love what one old-time theologian writes. He says, because Jesus, at God's behest, has cleared away human sin from before the face of God, God can look down on his creatures, in particular on those who trust this removal, and see lovely, lovable human beings. How encouraging is it to know, how comforting is it to know that if you are in Christ this morning, 
If you've turned from your rebellion, if you believed on Jesus Christ for your salvation, that God actually delights in you. He sees you as a lovely and lovable person. Someone in whom he takes tremendous pleasure. Okay, but how does he take away the sin of the world? Well, he takes up our sin by lifting it up with him on the cross. See, we're just getting into this book. I mean, what, I don't know, we're three or four weeks in. And already... John wants us to, to take our minds to the cross. It's too important to wait. Before we've barely gotten anywhere in this book, John wants us to know that the outcome of the cross will be this. The sin of the world will be dealt with in the person of the Lamb. Now, to say that Jesus, the Lamb, takes away the sin of the world doesn't mean that everyone goes to heaven when they die. We're not, this is not some sort of universalist teaching. This is just a reference to the comprehensiveness of Jesus' cross work. Now John talks a lot about the world and, and uses the, the word world in different ways, and we'll talk more about that in John chapter 3. Um, but you know, sometimes we hear people complain and criticize Christianity for its exclusivity, right? For the exclusiveness of its claims. By which I mean, they say, well, Christianity says that only by believing in Jesus Christ can anyone be saved. Only through the person of Jesus can, can anyone actually be made right with God. And to that we have to say a hearty amen. Yes, we absolutely believe that. And when we get to John 14, we're going to see the clearest expression of this. So is Christianity exclusive? Yes, in the sense that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. A thousand times yes. But we don't often hear a lot about the inclusivity of Christianity, by which I mean the story of a Savior who died for all kinds of people, for the rebellious and the hateful, for the disinterested and the deviant, for the misguided and the malevolent, a Savior who died for idolaters, a Savior who died for those who rejected him, for, for people of every tongue, tribe, and nation a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Don't hear enough about the inclusivity of Christianity. That is, he dies for people of all backgrounds, of all sin histories, of all races, of all nations, of all tribes. Because the pure and innocent lamb was slain, all those who trust in the shedding of his blood on the cross are giving something, they're giving, given something incredible, and that is, a perfectly righteous record. They are forgiven. They are, their guilt has been removed. Over the years, I've officiated at dozens, I don't know if I could say hundreds, I'd have to go back and look, but at least dozens of memorial services. And I've, I've preached at funerals of faithful believers, which was really a, a, a great time to reflect on their life and the influence they've had. I've, I've, I've officiated funerals for staunch, admitted atheists, it's a very heart-wrenching thing to do. And I've seen in, in these memorial services, I've seen all kinds of strange behavior. Now, most of them go pretty well, but I've seen some weird things. I've seen people in a drunken stupor seize the mi microphone and go off on a tangent and all kinds of ill-timed and inappropriate relationships. I I've seen the sort of family feuds at funerals that would make Jerry Springer blush. I mean, I I I've seen people go at each other 
I've seen people have to be physically restrained. I've seen people fighting over money while the person who, who's dead, the, the, the body is still there. They can't wait to start arguing over who's going to get what. But by God's grace, I've never had anyone yell at me during a service. As a first-year seminary student, I heard Dr. Benjamin Stanley Baker tell the story of delivering a, a message at a funeral for a well-known drug kingpin in Detroit. Dr. Baker, a, a fiery African-American preacher, terrific preacher and, and great uh, godly servant and a man that I learned from. He came to our seminary and, and held a week. There was a week-long uh, series of, of sermons. And um, he was telling the story in this one of his sermons about delivering, uh, delivering this message at a funeral for this drug pen, this drug kingpin in Detroit. And Dr. Baker said that he made the point in a crowd of addicts and prostitutes and ex-convicts that God had the power to remove their guilt and make them brand new. But when he announced to the audience that he said that God can give you back your virginity, he said that was more than one lady could handle. She stood up right in the middle of the service and shouted angrily, are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? You have no idea what I've done. Now, naturally, this makes for an awkward moment for a preacher. You say, well, do I respond? Do I try to make a joke at this point? Probably not the best time for a joke. Do I crawl out of here and try to hide? What do I do? Well, despite her anger, Dr. Baker was exactly right in what he was saying. According to the scriptures, believers in Christ enjoy something seemingly impossible, and that is a completely clean slate. The removal of guilt and shame. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God we become righteous by faith. Now what else happens? Look at verses 32 and 30 through 34 again. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. And listen to this. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, what's fascinating here is we see something of the inner life of the Trinity. The Trinity. We see this, this inner life of God at work here. God the Father, John says, sent him to baptize Jesus, whom he will call the Son of God. And the Spirit descends on Jesus and remains on him. And then Jesus goes forth and baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a seminary class on the Trinity just in one paragraph. It's, it's really, really rich. Well, this is to show us not only the deity of Christ, although certainly that's important here, but also the Trinitarian nature of salvation. Conversion is a two-sided gift. It is the forgiveness of sins, that is to say the removal of guilt before God, but it is also the gifting of the Holy Spirit. So, so when a person is born again, regenerated, made alive in Christ, whatever phrase you want to use, they're, they're, they are forgiven of all their sins. All their offenses against God are removed and they're declared righteous before God. But they're also, that's, that's the negation, that's the negative part. They're actually then given 
imparted to them is the Holy Spirit. They are baptized with the Holy Spirit. They are indwelled by the very Spirit of God. You know, when people talk about the Holy Spirit, and, and actually John's gospel, we're gonna, this is going to be good. There's a lot about the Holy Spirit in John's gospel, so we'll get into some of this. When people talk about the Holy Spirit, they almost always want to run to the Holy Spirit, uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They always want to go there, and I, I understand that. And yes, the Holy Spirit does convict, but there's a reason that he's called the comforter and not the convictor. And that's because the work of the Holy Spirit is to, is to reassure us of God's love for us. The work of the Holy Spirit is to, is to take away from our conscience our sin and our guilt and reimmerse us in the faith of the crucified and risen Lamb. Again, Jesus will talk about the Holy Spirit regularly in this gospel, so we're going to see it. But, but right away we see that the taking away of sin and the immersion of the Holy Spirit go hand in hand. So what do we make of this? Here's our final point this morning. Ongoing renewal is the experience of the believer who is ever indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And this actually is every believer. So every believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit with a sort of indwelling that can never be taken away. No one else can, can take the Holy Spirit from us. But part of being indwelled by the Holy Spirit is this aspect of ongoing renewal. You might remember we talked about this in our first week of the study of John. The life of the believer is one of constant new beginnings, constant renewal. Now certainly, again, as I said then, there is a beginning to our spiritual lives, the new birth. And we're going to get into this in John chapter 3 in Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus. There is the beginning. So if you are in Christ some point in your life, God, by His mercy and His grace, He brought you to a place of repentant faith. If you're not in Christ, you may know a lot about Jesus, and you may know a lot of scriptures, and you may come to church every week, but you've never been made alive in Christ. You've never really put your faith in Jesus, so what you're really trusting in is yourself. So certainly there's a beginning to our spiritual lives. When God makes us alive in Christ, we're born again from above through faith in the Lamb who was slain. But that renewal then is ongoing. As by His Spirit, as by His Spirit, God empowers us to resist sin. As by His Spirit, God conforms us into the image of His beloved Son. This happens over time, over, over time. As by His Spirit, God smashes our self-reliance and removes the idols of our hearts, and He increases our joy in Him. And this is, a, this is something I pray all the time. I pray all the time for myself. God, increase my joy in you. I pray it for my own family. I pray it for my wife. God, increase her joy in you. For my kids, increase their joy in you. This is part of the ongoing renewal of the Spirit. He magnifies our joy in Him. As we see with greater clarity His beauty, His power, His mercy, His grace. As He, in the words of U2's Bono, and I love this from the song Yahweh, He takes our mouths so quick to criticize and He enables them to speak a word of encouragement. He takes, he takes these hands that are so quick 
to make a fist. In other words, so quick to oppose authority, so quick to start conflict, so quick to demand our own way. And he empowers these hands to serve others. And he takes our hearts so quick to depend on ourselves, our own works, our own abilities, our own goodness, our own performance. And he continually allows us to see our shortcomings, but then draws us immediately to the grace and mercy of God. All this takes place because we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who, according to Romans 5, pours out God's love into our hearts at every moment. The Spirit of God. If you are in Christ this morning, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. And He is shaping you. And He is sanctifying you. And He is empowering you. And yes, He is convicting you. And He is encouraging you. And He is pouring out the love of God in your heart. So you can experience with greater joy, with greater pleasure, this relationship for which you were designed. The one who pours out the Father's love. And in fact, how deep is that Father's love? Let's pray and sing about it together.